The DOJ launches a probe into ADM over accounting practices. And I'll talk with political columnist Greg Hines, who says the Chicago Bears' real focus is not Arlington Heights, but in fact, Chicago's lakefront. Kevin Warren, uh, the new uh, president of the Bears, is a city guy. He lives downtown. It's entertainment. And what do you want entertainment? You want glitch. You want a, you want a nice stage. Well, what's a better stage for a big football game? Uh, a, 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 some, some cornfields around Arlington Heights or the downtown Chicago skyline? I'm Amy Guth, and this is Crane's Daily Gist for Wednesday, February 7th. Are you sick of not being your bank's top priority? We are too. At Wintrust, we take a different approach to banking. We're proud to be your one true banking partner focused on your unique financial goals that's right in your backyard. Whether you're opening your first account, buying a home, planning for the future, or starting a business, we have tailored solutions to get you there. Stop settling and start experiencing a better way to bank at Wintrust.com. Wintrust, different approach, better results. Banking products provided by Wintrust Financial Corporation Banks, member FDIC. I'm joined by political columnist Greg Hines, who says the Bears' real focus is not Arlington Heights, but in fact, the lakefront. Okay, that seems like a big shift in in how things have been looking, anyway, for the last year or so. Greg, catch me up. What's the latest with the Bears? Well, Amy, the latest is uh, in this uh, wonderful game of moving uh, moving stadium we love to all love to talk about in the media, <laughs> is that uh, uh, there does seem to have been a sea level change uh, in attitude by the Bears. Uh, you are correct. A year ago, uh, this time, they'd bought the property in Arlington Heights. They were demolishing the uh, the old uh, grandstand, and they're all set to go. And boom, all of a sudden, something changed. And now, senior people in state government, senior people at City Hall, and very good sources, multiple around the team, all tell me that that's changed, that their focus now is building in the city. In particular, uh, more likely than not, the uh, south parking lot on the uh, the edge of a soldier field that was supposed to be home of the Lucas Museum, if you all remember that. Mm-hmm. Right. Do you have a sense of kind of what those plans would look like, what the facility would look like, what all it would take on? Well, we know that it's going to be a dome because the Bears have told people that. Uh, we know it's going to be a full-size stadium, so you're probably talking 50,000, 60,000 seats. We know it would be big enough to house a Final Four or, or a, a Super Bowl, uh, so that gives you kind of, kind of the rough dimensions. So it would be somewhat bigger than the existing soldier field, uh, but configured in a football sense, uh, which is really necessary because soldier field was really configured for soccer and track a long time ago. And it was kind of retrofitted. This would be a, a real football city. So you mentioned the Lucas Museum. Friends of the parks were pretty clear as soon as that first whisper of that South parking lot being a possibility bubbled up. Friends of the Park sounded like they were not interested in letting that happen, that they were going to fight that for sure. And it seems like that's how we saw things play out for the Lucas Museum. So so what would be different now? How would this project move forward for the Bears? Well, first, a couple of things. Um, you are absolutely correct that uh, that uh, Friends of the Parks uh, say no no building, no nothing on the lakefront ever. Uh, they want it to be free and clear forever. I understand the philosophy and the, the public sense behind that. And yes, they almost certainly are going to oppose uh, whatever the Bears put on the table here, uh, if the Bears proceed with the, proceed in the direction they seem to be going. However, even though they filed suit against the Lucas Museum, that suit was never adjudicated. It was filed 
and it stalled the thing. And George Lucas just got tired of waiting. Said, "Well, you know, screw you in Chicago. If you're not gonna, if you're gonna tie me up. I'm gonna pick up my uh, uh, my Star Wars and uh, and move out to L.A., which he proceeded to do. That doesn't mean, however, he wouldn't have eventually won the court case. That's point number one. Point number two is uh, there has been another case on point. It's not exactly the same, but it's close enough. And that's the Obama Museum on the south side, close to Jackson Park, where park property is being used for a private development of the Obama Presidential Center. And a group opposed that, took it to federal court. They said, hey, this is court. These are private uh, public properties. You shouldn't use it. But the court said, hey, uh, this was considered by the appropriate city bodies, the, by the city council, by the Chicago Park District, and they determined that the Obama Museum was in the public interest. And therefore, this is a proper use of park property. Uh, the, the, they fulfilled the responsibilities of their stewardship. That's point number two. Point number three is part of this uh, stadium idea on uh, which the Bears certainly would argue that it's in the public interest to keep this football team and all the glory and money and jobs that comes with it in Chicago rather than in a green field out in the burbs somewhere. And there's another wrinkle. And another wrinkle is there's talk that, gee, if we're going to build a new stadium next to Soldier Field, guess what? We won't need Soldier Field anymore. Mm. Nobody wants it. It's old. It's dilapidated. So we'll knock down everything except for maybe the historic colonnades and a couple other uh, prominent aspects. Uh, but take the field and the and the stands or whatever and turn that into, guess what, park space. And, mm. and gee, Judge, uh, that's in the public interest, too. So in, in, in giving this uh, parking lot, what's now a parking lot to the Bears, uh, for their new stay, we've actually increased the amount of park space. We're going to have more. So, of course, this is in the public interest. Interesting. Is that going to be enough to sway friends of the parks? Probably not. Uh, how about a federal court judge? Well, maybe. It's certainly It's certainly worth thinking about. Yeah, definitely. Those are all very good points. And talk to me about how that, that deal would be financed. Well, the Bears haven't talked about any of this publicly, but it is clear based on my conversations that they are going after the um, bonding authority of the Illinois Sports Facilities Authority, uh, which is an agency that funds sports stadiums. It funds the renovation of Soldier Field for the Bears. We're still paying off those bonds. We got a lot of money to pay off, incidentally. Uh, and they've and they've paid for the construction of a guaranteed rate field where the White Sox play. Uh, those bonds are about paid off. So this is a little room uh, uh, under their existing structure to issue uh, existing to issue more bonds. In addition to that, though, there's this special clause that, in the wonderful way of Springfield, somehow got snuck into a budget bill a couple three years ago. And that says that if you uh, reissue bonds, if you refinance bonds, those won't count against the cap on how much normally the Sports Appeals Authority can have in bonds. Uh, but you have to do it by the end of, of this year, 2024. That potentially, we're in the process here, Cranes are trying, out, trying to find out some more specifics, but that potentially could free up some hundreds of millions of dollars uh, in bonds that could assist with uh, with a, a new bear stadium. Um, it's always more complicated than that though. The complication factor is that uh, that's the same source that Jerry Reinsdorf apparently is eyeing for his new stadium in the 78, which we've all been writing about. And the question is, is there enough money in that pot to pay for both of them? Because the only source to pay off these bonds is the 2% hotel tax uh, on Chicago hotel and motel rooms. That provides pretty good bucks, $60, $70 million a year, but, it, but it's limited. 
So the question here, is there enough bonding authority? And is there enough money to make both the Reinsdorfs and the McCaskies happy? Don't know that answer yet. Right, right. That's that's a big question for sure. You know, I also can't help but kind of wonder, uh, there's, you know, there, there's some things that have changed, right, since this first came up, right? We had uh, Kevin Warren took over for Ted Phillips, but we also got a new mayor. How much do you think those two leadership changes factor in here? Well, I think there's three factors of note that I would mention. You mentioned, you mentioned two of them. Uh, one is that uh, uh, the team uh, had a particularly poor relationship with former Mayor Lori Lightfoot and her uh, and her staff at the park district uh, in the park, and the uh, Bears didn't get along at all. The Bears felt that uh, they weren't able to do reasonable things to, right, to bring in the kind of money they wanted. The park district said, yes, we're doing what we're supposed to do, but for instance, uh, one of the things that was envisioned in the original deal in which Soldier Field was rebuilt was that the Bears would have naming rights for Soldier Field. You could call it the AT&T Center at Soldier Field or something like that. It'd bring in $50 million a year. That's real money over time. Uh, the Bears never got it. Uh, it got it got uh, a limited discussion. Uh, Johnson at least seems willing to listen. Uh, both sides and people around them have said they've had very cordial discussions in which they've made some progress. So that's one thing that's changed. Second thing that changed is you're absolutely right. Kevin Warren, the new uh, president of the Bears, is a city guy. He lives downtown. It's not hard to find instances where he's talked about how wonderful downtown is, how pretty it is. I think uh, he's on to something. Uh, I don't think this is all just personal thing on his part. Uh, professional football really now is a, is a, is a TV sport uh, with all due deference of people that show up. It's entertainment. You want glitch. You want a, you want a nice stage. Well, what's a better stage for a big football game? Some cornfields around Arlington Heights or the downtown Chicago skyline? Which adds more glitz to your product? And which is more attractive if the people do show up? All the restaurants downtown or the far lesser number of restaurants out in the north suburbs? So that's part of it. And since he's the head of the organization, heads of organizations tend to get what they want. Um, there's a third factor, too, that you didn't mention that I think is probably equally important. That's inflation. The Bears, unlike a lot of NFL teams, are owned by a family that, while they're wealthy, they're not super rich, the McCaskies. Uh, they have limited pocketbooks. They've never been willing to borrow a lot of money, and they've never been willing to dilute their ownership seriously by bringing in a lot of partners. That means their ability to finance a big deal is limited. Well, since they rolled out the Arlington Heights deal a couple of years ago, we all know what's happened. If you, if you go to the grocery store, guess what? It costs you 30% more, 20% more. Well, that's true, plus more in the construction field. So the cost of doing what they wanted to do are out in Arlington Heights, uh, which was going to be a difficult sell for them, I think, in the first place, has gone up. Whereas in the city, uh, the costs have gone up too, but because you're dealing with a smaller site and a smaller project, your overall cost is less. That's so less of a factor. I think you add all that up together and it tells you that uh, and it explains why the team ownership has decided, well, let's take a serious run at, at, at Chicago and see if we can pull this off. Um, if we can, great. If not, well, we still own uh, own those 300, whatever, however many, 160 acres, whatever it is, out in Arlington Heights. Yeah, that's a really good point. So you mentioned the the possibility of bond refinancing needing to happen by the end of this year. Still a lot of unknowns, of course. This is still kind of early, but but what what is your sense of a possible timeline in here? The idea of giving incentives to big sports stadium and, and wealthy owners to build little palaces so they can make more money has limited appeal right now. Uh, it's happened in a lot of places, and it's created a 
a lot of sour taste in people's mouths. Um, and so you're asking a big political risk to ask politicians to go on on a limb. That's why Governor Pritzker, when asked about about subsidies for the Bears Stadium, uh, has has kind of hedges and well, I don't want new any new uh, any new uh, subsidies. On the other hand, if he can work within the existing structure without increasing taxes uh, or increasing public liability, any then maybe it's easier to put together a deal. But like I said, the, the, this one clause, it would appear, uh, expires by the end of the year. And if they don't get the deal done by the end of the year, then they have to go back and ask the legislator to do something to create, in effect, create new authority and new liability. And uh, that's why I think uh, they would like to, if they can, get this thing over and done with right, right now. Yeah, interesting. Well, I suppose we have to put a pin in this for now, and I'm sure we will revisit it many, many times. Hey, as good as as, as good of a, as good as good of a story as Chicago sports is, the story of Chicago sports moguls and their uh, shuffling deck of stadia possibilities right. is actually <laughs> right. That is that is kind of a thing right now for sure. All right. Well, thanks so much, Greg. Always a pleasure. My pleasure. Coming up, Rivian teases a first look at a smaller, less expensive electric SUV. We'll talk about that and more right after this. Want to dive deeper into the topics you've heard here? Read the full stories and get access to all of Crane's award-winning coverage with a Crane's Chicago Business subscription. Crane's Daily Gist listeners can get 20% off a one-year Crane's Chicago Business digital subscription by visiting chicagobusiness.com gist and using promo code gist at checkout. Once again, to redeem this offer, visit chicagobusiness.com gist and enter code gist to get this deal while it lasts. This is the Crane's Daily Gist with Amy Guth. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan has launched an investigation into the accounting practices at Archer Daniels Midland, according to people with direct knowledge of the matter. Bloomberg reported that the probe is focused on the company's nutrition business, said the people who asked not to be named discussing confidential information. As Bloomberg also reported, ADM shook the commodity world last month after it suspended Chief Financial Officer Vikram Luthar and cut its earnings outlook pending an outside counsel inquiry into its accounting practices involving the troubled segment. The company probe was prompted by an SEC request, and now the DOJ investigation raises the specter of potential legal consequences for ADM's reporting procedures, boosting concerns about the full impact of what all occurred internally. Both an ADM spokesperson and the DOJ declined to comment on the investigation. But as Bloomberg also reported, the scandal has thrown the spotlight on a decade-long push to lessen ADM's dependence on its legacy agricultural commodities trading business, which is notoriously prone to volatility. ADM expanded its nutrition business with its $3 billion purchase of European natural ingredient maker Wild Flavors a decade ago, its biggest ever acquisition. But profits so far have failed to live up to initial expectations due to weak demand, including for plant-based food. While nutrition is still a small part of ADM's business, it played an outsized role on recent executive bonuses. And as Bloomberg further noted, the current drama has also aggravated investors' longtime concerns that large, complex companies are more prone to the risk of undetected manipulation of crucial financial figures. In a memo late last month, CEO Juan Luciano said the company probe involves, quote, transfer of goods and the related financial accounting between business segments, and that the transaction 
transactions under investigation would not significantly impact the crop traders' earnings. Still, ADM has lost nearly $8 billion in market value since the probe became public, and ADM has delayed the reporting of its 2023 results. The FAA's top official pledged to hold Boeing accountable for any quality lapses as the agency examines the U.S. plane maker's manufacturing processes following a near disaster on an Alaska Airlines flight last month. Uh, our number one priority is safety. Uh, recent events, especially the January 5th incident involving the Boeing 737 MAX 9, have shown us we can't become complacent when it comes to maintaining safety and public confidence in the aviation system. FAA Administrator Mike Whitaker told lawmakers Tuesday on Capitol Hill, quote, the events of January 5th really created two issues for us. One is what's wrong with this airplane, but two, what's going on with the production at Boeing. He continued, quote, there have been issues in the past and they don't seem to be getting resolved, so we feel like we need to have a heightened level of oversight. We've begun an audit of Boeing's production and quality control practices, and we've informed Boeing that the FAA will not grant any production expansion of the MAX until we're satisfied the quality control issues uncovered during this process are resolved. Going forward, we will have more boots on the ground closely scrutinizing and monitoring production and manufacturing activities. Boeing employees are encouraged to use our FAA hotline to report any safety concerns. He added that the agency will step up monitoring Boeing's factories, saying the FAA will, quote, consider the full extent of our enforcement authority to ensure Boeing is held accountable for any noncompliance. Whitaker testified before the House Transportation and Infrastructure Committee. The midair structural blowout of the Boeing 737 MAX 9 has led the agency to step up its scrutiny of Boeing and its suppliers and to bar the plane maker from increasing deliveries until quality improves. The FAA said on Monday that they expect to have enough data from an investigation launched after the accident to make initial recommendations as soon as late February. Bloomberg noted in reporting that Boeing had a series of manufacturing glitches with the MAX through 2023, which culminated in the near-catastrophic panel blowout on January 5th. The National Transportation Safety Board is probing the cause of the failure, and its preliminary report is expected this week. But meanwhile, Boeing's largest union, the International Association of Machinists and Aerospace Workers, is still smarting over a 2014 deal that sacrificed pensions, locked in minimal raises, and tied the hands of activists for a decade. Union leaders will demand a 40 percent pay raise over three or four years, emboldened by a resurgent U.S. labor movement, a scarcity of qualified aerospace workers and pressure on Boeing to stabilize work in its factories. Bloomberg noted that with talks set to start on March 8th, labor tensions will add to the scrutiny on Boeing CEO Dave Calhoun. Cliff Collier, a consultant with decades of aerospace manufacturing experience, told Bloomberg that there's a link between Boeing's labor pains and the quality lapses that prompted U.S. regulators and airline customers to send auditors into the plane maker's factories after the Alaska Airlines incident. Collier further said that Boeing's recent struggles are rooted in turnover, noting an influx of less experienced workers and managers since the onset of the pandemic and labor tactics that led to an earlier exodus of seasoned workers. Find more reporting about Boeing at chicagobusiness.com. 
Bloomberg reported that Kroger Company said Monday that its chief financial officer is leaving to go to another company as the supermarket operator awaits regulators' ruling on its proposed merger with Albertsons. Gary Millerchip, who started at Kroger in 2008, was named CFO in 2019, according to the company. Bloomberg also noted in reporting that the Cincinnati company said that Todd Foley, corporate controller and chief accounting officer, will serve as interim CFO and that a permanent successor will be named at a later date. Kroger agreed in late 2022 to buy Albertsons for about $24.6 billion to better compete against rivals like Walmart. Bloomberg noted that the deal has drawn opposition from elected officials and workers, and the Federal Trade Commission has been reviewing the proposed merger. Crane's John Asplund reported that Rush University's System for Health has laid off workers in administrative and leadership positions, citing financial issues, according to a February 2nd statement from the three-hospital system, a spokesperson for which said the layoffs occurred on February 1st and 2nd and were across all three hospitals. The system didn't say how many people were let go, but indicated in its statement that the layoffs did not immediately impact patient care. The statement said, quote, in response to financial headwinds affecting health care providers nationwide, Rush has undertaken a restructuring resulting in elimination of some administrative and leadership positions. Asplund noted in reporting that the day before news surfaced of layoffs at Rush, University of Chicago Medicine similarly cut workers, with the health system saying it laid off 180 workers, most of whom they said were in non-patient-facing roles. In social media posts, Rivian teased what many in the auto world have been awaiting for more than a year, and that is the unveiling of R2, a similar and less expensive version of the Illinois-built line of electric vehicles. According to Rivian, a first look at the R2 will be revealed on March 7th. The model, which Rivian executives have said will be a mid-sized SUV, is expected to be priced from roughly $40,000 to $60,000 and is slated to be available in 2026. The older R1 line has an average selling price starting at about $73,000. The launch is also seen by some auto industry analysts as a challenge to Tesla's Model Y, which starts at $45,000. The R2 is also Rivian's first global platform sized to fit U.S., European, and Chinese streets, according to Rivian's CEO in a July interview with Bloomberg News. That's Crane's Daily Gist for now. Check in on our continuous news feed at chicagobusiness.com. Thanks so much to today's guest, political columnist Greg Hines. You can follow all of our conversations on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your audio on demand. Don't forget to subscribe and please rate and review Crane's Daily Gist. Our show is produced by Todd Manley at Earsight Studios. I'm Amy Guth. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you right back here next time.